Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to another edition of Objection to the Rule. Today is January 21st. Coming up, the government is shut down and in 13 hours, the Senate will vote to see if it'll reopen again. We'll talk about the shutdown and what it means and why both sides seem to be pointing fingers. Plus, Trump gives out fake news awards to media organizations with reporting errors or unfavorable opinions. What does such an act mean for our free press? And women and men took to the streets across the country yesterday to march for the second year against Trump's election. But he didn't seem to know what the reason was. All that news is coming up and more right here on Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to another edition of Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Ori Givens. We've got Rosie Misdari in the studio. Hey, Rosie, how are you doing? Yes, we just had. I'm sad that I didn't get to listen to the last show because you had Tin Volva on, and they looked like they were rocking it out. They were amazing. They were playing. You know, you what you missed? You missed their rendition of their favorite cover song, which is "What's Love Got to Do with It" by Tina Turner. Oh my God, that is one of my favorite songs. I mean, Tina Turner is amazing. She's like a rock trish. She's just everything. I I'm gonna have to listen back to that show because I bet it was epic. I'm I'm kind of jealous. It was. I'm sure it was good. So let's get into the news. Violet will be joining us in a moment. So the fake news awards. That's interesting. We have the president of the United States issued a list of awards uh, claiming that media either willfully represented or misreported the news during his first year in office. The list is basically where outlets included news or reported news that was found to be incorrect. Keep in mind, a lot of those outlets did did retract or issue corrections on that. It happens when you're reporting stories. Sometimes things aren't as accurate as you think they are. And the list also includes some opinion pieces that publications clearly labeled as opinion, but they were contradictory to the narratives that the Trump administration was putting out. The release actually crashed the site that it was listed on and Even Republican senators were speaking out about the list, talking about, you know, quote, it's the action of a despotic leader to dispute the legitimacy of media that checks power. So, first of all, you know, what does it say that we're in this era where, you know, the president, the administration is calling out media for critical reporting about him? You know what? It's it's very frightening because I've lived in countries where um, the media was controlled by the government and there were a few, I guess, rebel uh, news outlets. Um, you know, and I actually, you know, when I was living in South Africa, I knew s- several journalists who had to live, who had to report under the apartheid regime and mm-hmm. the trickiness of that. And it strongly resembles the uh, the the sort of attitude that leaders in some of the leaders that we despise in the Middle East and in other parts of the world, their attitude towards the uh, journalists who decide to report the truth. It's natural to make a mistake. And each one of those cases that he cited, 
they retracted it within days mm -hmm. and one of them was an opinion and i think that you can't have a fake opinion i mean you could have a fake opinion but it would seem unlikely that a nobel prize winning economist mm -hmm. who works for the new york times who won first place i guess in his uh fake news awards would be giving a fake opinion and so i just found i agree it's a it's a completely the attitude a corrupt leader would take and uh the fact that the gop site uh crashed i couldn't understand why i mean there's probably millions of users on facebook constantly mm -hmm. and instagram and all these others i it highly probably speaks to their server capacity more than anything yes i was really i was more the fake news awards disappointed me in their server capacity than it did in their actually <laughs> awards. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because anybody that looks at the media uh, with an objective eye, anybody that believes in what you know we do as reporters and as journalists and the role of the media in society knows that it is there to bring power to justice. It's there to look at critically the structures of power, the forces at play, and to evaluate those in order to report that information to the people. It is a necessary check to what happens in government, what happens in big business, what happens within all of these structures that ne don't necessarily get checked. And just saying that they're fake isn't going to make them fake. You know, just saying that the information isn't accurate, you know, or, or painting them in a negative light doesn't negate the value of what organizations provide when they're reporting on the, you know, the actions of our government. And, you know, I don't know about you, but as a, as a reporter, when I'm working with somebody or I'm interviewing somebody that seems like they have something to hide or they automatically go to this kind of disdain for the press, it makes me more critical and more kind of, you know, not worried, but it, it makes me look harder because it seems like there might be something there that, you know, needs to be reported. And so I don't know if that might, you know, these awards might have the negative effect of what he's trying to do, which is shame publications for reporting on him. It is intrinsic to a free society and a democracy to have a free press. And they should be allowed to make mistakes because even in moments of, it, like I've had moments as a journalist where I was unsure where my source was going to take me, whether the information I was receiving was 100% accurate, because sometimes you receive information and it sounds completely crazy, but it shouldn't dissuade you or prevent you from a journalist from pursuing it, because sometimes things that everyone says are untrue, and this has been proven many times mm -hmm. over and over again, things that have been said to be untrue have proven to be true. And I think it's important not to shame our press, especially, you know what, the New York Times, especially, which I'm sure is one of um, is one of Trump's favorite places to hit for fake news. The New York Times has so much integrity as an as a news agency. When they make a mistake, as soon as they find out they make a mistake, it goes into the next edition. And there is a noticeable retraction explaining that they made the mistake. It is their fault. And then correcting it. Mm -hmm. And I think that as long as that is there, then that is not a fake news agency. Well, I know for, for me, I can't speak for you, but I know for me, if I make an error, you know, it it hurts you as a journalist. You know, it hurts you as a person because you know that your role is to provide truth to the viewing public or the reading public or whoever your audience is. 
So when you do make an error like that, you feel like you've let down people. You feel like you've let down the job. So I don't believe that, you know, these journalists are making errors because they just want to make errors. Sometimes you get information, you vet it out, it seems that it's okay, but then you come to find out that it's not or that there's more nuance to what you find. And so it's almost like there's a misunderstanding of that, that understanding of that relationship, you know. I completely agree. And there have been moments for me as a journalist where I've had to retract. I've had to correct myself. It's a humiliating moment. Absolutely. But, you know, I'll tell you this much. The average journalist and what they train you when you're when you go to school for journalism, when you start training as a journalist, if you work for any sort of like reputable news agency, accuracy is very important. And when you make a mistake, if you don't report it, that makes then you're not a journalist anymore. And um, and with that being said, like, I think uh, it's a humiliating moment, but it's also a learning moment. And mm-hmm. it's part of it's part of the whole news gathering experience. Every single journalist has had that experience. It's just like in any sort of um, career or, or industry where when a mistake happens, when a doctor make a mis- makes a mistake and misdiagnoses somebody, but he doesn't do it because he wants to hurt that person or kill that person. Mm-hmm. He does it because that's what he thought was the best at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important to pull back on what this whole negative light on journalists and to realize that it is an industry of people. And just like any industry of people, there are mistakes made. And when people own up to that mistakes and correct them, they should be accepted and they shouldn't be uh, vilified because I think that this vilifying the press for what he feels is fake news. And I think some of the stuff he felt was fake news wasn't fake news at all. But other than that, I feel like vilifying the press makes them less likely to either one retract the incorrect statements that they make or make them less likely to report and chase leads of things that actually might lead to important information because the press is incredibly important. They're the ones who find the information that isn't readily available. That, I mean, we're, they're the ones out there looking for information for us. Mm-hmm. We're not spending our time looking for information. We depend on the press to Absolutely. give it to us. And we're in a time right now where it's even more so important to evaluate the actions of our government to look at what's coming out of Washington, out of the White House, out of Capitol Hill, because there are so many groups that feel disconnected from this administration, that feel like it's not representing them, that feel like the interests of the government are not their own interests. And that's when it's even more important to have watchful eyes on these institutions. And it's fair, you know, if if the 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 government does things that should be lauded, should be celebrated. We as the press will celebrate them. We will report them just as if the government does something that people may find not something to be celebrated. It's about that balance, you know, and it's important that we continue to do that work and that people doing that work don't get, you know, vilified or don't get, you know, kind of thrown out as being you know, fake for doing that work. You know, we we have to be in a place where people who are involved in the news gathering process feel the power to do the jobs that they do because it's not easy. Well, you know, what's funny is the attitude that I think a lot of press has taken to this fake news awards. I think a lot of them took it as a badge of pride because I remember I was listening to NPR yesterday and they were sorely disappointed 
that they weren't even nominated. They said that they have been working so hard to be a fake news agency and they were upset that they weren't even nominated, but they said that this would not detract from their, their work to work towards being nominated next year and to appear on the fake news uh, award red carpet next year. That's kind of funny. Maybe it's a badge of honor, you know, to be on the fake news because that means you're getting noticed, right? That means the president and, and his people have noticed what you're reporting. And that says something, you know, that definitely says that, the work that you're doing is kind of rising to the top of the the fake news celebration. Violet, what do you think? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that so much of the fake news, the quote unquote fake news was either opinion pieces whose predictions didn't turn out to align with reality or, um, you know, mistakes, like just mistakes that were quickly corrected or that reporters uh, were um you know, uh, saw repercussions for, or some, some even, uh, were, uh, were fired. But so, you know, in some ways it's a distinction for a publication or a, you know, a media outlet to get this recognition that they're doing this work that's checking the power of the president. But in other cases, it's just, you know, it's not even worth that because it's not even checking that. Well, that's true. And then, and that's, that's the other thing that you don't have a lot of room for error as a reporter. You don't get too many mistakes. You know, you might make an error and, and especially if you're at the high level of, you know, working for the New York Times or working for CNN or one of the major broadcast networks, you don't get a lot of opportunities to mess up. Right. And usually, you know, if it happens more than once or twice, then you're probably looking for another job because that's, that's the, power of that role and that is you know the integrity of those organizations are most important when you're a news organization all you have is your public trust your integrity the belief in the news that you carry out and when you have too many people that you know change that or or cause people to look at it as being less than what you want it to be then you have to make adjustments you have to make decisions and let people go we've seen it you know brian williams we've seen it with so many different people where trust or lack of trust caused them to lose their jobs right anything else before we go on to to the the olympics i'm ready for the olympics i actually am ready for the i love the olympics it's like my favorite sports event of of all time like i'm not really a football person i'm not really you know occasionally i watch college football but i love the olympics like for those two weeks i am like glued to the tv i have dvr everything like i watch the opening ceremonies i watch I'm, i'm obsessed like i'm totally obsessed and this year the Olympics are in Pyeongchang in South Korea. And now we know that North Korea and South Korea will be marching under a unified flag. North Korea will be sending athletes to participate in the Olympics. And the, the interesting thing about this is that there are diplomatic talks happening uh, between North Korea and South Korea. And I don't know if it was maybe so that this could happen or if it's related to the other things that we've been talking about on this show, the, you know, the tit-for-tat threats of nuclear war between the United States and North Korea. And some allies of South Korea are warning that this is just a ploy, you know, to allow the North Koreans to develop a nuclear program while the world is kind of focused on South Korea. I don't know. That's an interesting theory. What do you guys, what do you think? 
I feel like we can't really we can't let that possibility slide. You know, uh, yeah. it's there's not there's not really been a reason to turn around and trust North Korea now. It doesn't. You know, it's great that there was the diplomatic breakthrough and the, that the two Koreas are able to work together in some capacity now. But I don't think anything really substantial has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I I kind of I disagree a little bit. Um, a lot of people are very suspicious, with good reason. I mean, North Korea has never given us any indication that they um, that they honestly want to come to the table. But I think that I think they've rethought their strategy. I think they realize that they can't fight America the way they're fighting now. So why not annoy them and make friends with South Korea and be their best friends and alienate them? From America, mm-hmm. you know, and make America look even worse because now North Korea and South Korea can go to the table without America and be friends. And then the animo- and then the animosity that we show them makes us look like an aggressive country. And I feel like it's a different strategy that they're, they're taking. And also, I think we've said in the past with the with the Olympics, the wonderful thing about the Olympics is, is that you get to parade your athletes. You get to look at it as a country, regardless of all the stuff that you pulled all year long, whatever human rights violations you have. Unless, unfortunately, you're Russia. Yes. And um, and I think that uh, I think that they want to look good somehow. I think that North Korea is ready to. Uh, show some pride. They want to send some athletes. They want to win some medals. They want to be on TV for something that is positive. And I think that this this uh, strategy allows them to do that. No, I think that is that's an interesting point because it does kind of change the narrative, right? This you know these two countries that really were at odds and they needed the big bad America to come in and and help bring them together. Now are sitting at the table without the help of America, and they're able to unify at least for this moment. And kind of this Korean solidarity. And so that, that does send an interesting message to the world. And I wonder what the aftermath will be. You know, will these, dim, will these diplomatic discussions continue? Will it help to bring more kind of cohesion to that region? Or is it just, you know, playing nice while the world is watching? I think we'll, we'll find out as it plays out. So in updates on the Mueller investigation, because this is still going on, Steve Bannon was subpoenaed by special counsel Robert Mueller, and he'll testify in front of the grand jury. Now, he's the only person so far, the first person to have to be subpoenaed. Everyone else was kind of asked to come in. They came in. So it's interesting that they took that route. The White House has attempted to use a broad definition of executive privilege to forbid Bannon from speaking about anything related to his work within the presidential campaign or the transition to the White House, which also makes you kind of scratch your head. The... Interesting thing, because we are in the midst of a a government shutdown, Uh, their work will continue throughout this shutdown. The investigations will continue. The Mueller and his team are exempt from the shutdown. So it's not like this government shutdown is going to stop anything from happening on that front. Um, Why do you think the president chose to, you know, this is pure speculation, but why would the president try to put forth this idea of executive privilege to keep Bannon from testifying? Right. Well, it's very suspicious, isn't it? You yeah. know, uh, we get we get uh, executive privilege called called in at this crucial moment when Bannon could potentially reveal a lot. You know, we know from the book that he has a lot of potential dirt on the president, mm-hmm. uh, and 
uh, we have reason to believe, uh, uh, you know, some news have reported that the executive privilege was uh, uh, coming straight from Trump. You know, it was Trump who directed this um, order. Uh, what does it mean? I don't know. You know, like it's going to we're going to have to see how we can test and check that power and um, what what banning can be compelled to reveal and also you know how they can use the other things they have on Bannon to to push him well and you know this is if you look at kind of the history of these these testifying or this testifying they're going up the ladder like they keep on going up the ladder they're getting people that were closer and closer and close to the president i think the president has said that he's not going to testify so you know i wonder if they they would use the same strategy of subpoena can you subpoena the president to have to testify before this special counsel I'm not sure of the legality of that or the possibility that we'll have to look into that. Um, but they do. They keep on kind of climbing up and climbing up and climbing up. And it's like you wonder what information they're collecting along the way and what is the result of that information. So maybe this is, you know, because they're going for Bannon now, there may be some information that they have that they're trying to vet out. There may be some information that maybe only he has. And it's going to get even closer to finding out if there was any type of collusion um, between the campaign and Russia, which is the whole point of this investigation. Well, you know, I'm wondering, you know, um, one thing I thought of is, is that you can always plead the fifth. And mm-hmm. so the president can refuse to answer questions. He could be subpoenaed and he could say, I plead the fifth. And he can do it for whatever reason he wants. He doesn't need an executive uh, privilege in order to do that. It's everyone's p- privilege to do that. So um, with Bannon being subpoenaed, I really thought it was a matter of time. I think everybody realized at some point that Bannon was going to uh, be called in, in at this investigation at some point. And, um, and so um, it's just, uh, to me, it's this inevitable thing that's finally happened. Um, and the executive privilege, I actually looked up information on the executive privilege and I read the wording over and over again. And it is so ambiguous and so vague mm-hmm. that the president could probably keep him from speaking um, after I read it several times. I'm no lawyer, but I mean, I can know how to read. So um, it's definitely he can st- he can definitely stop uh, Bannon from speaking. And I don't know how I don't know if there's anything that exists that could overpower an executive privilege. Maybe the Supreme Court mm-hmm. could rule and say, you know what, this is in the interest of, of American security. There was election tampering. And maybe the Supreme Court will have to step in at some point and say, you can't plead the fifth. You can no longer uh, use executive privilege. This is a matter of national security. And it trumps, excuse the term, trumps all of the excuses that you have for not speaking. And I feel like I don't care if Bannon gets subpoenaed because I've lost faith in him as a person. And I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if he went in there and was vague or told half truths or told full lies, because I feel like as the in charge of being in charge of Breitbart, in charge of um, after all the things he's said and done, I feel like um, I don't know if I could even if he gets subpoenaed, I don't know if it would even matter. I think that he is an unreliable witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. So coming after coming up after the break, we're going to talk about government shutdown, why finger pointing is at an all time high in Washington right now and what the shutdown says about Trump's first anniversary as president. But first, we're going to take a listen to Tatters and Rags. They're joining Karen and the Sorrows at the Nightmare River Band uh, at the February edition of RFB Presents. 
That's first Thursdays at the well. The show is February 1st at 8 p.m. And you can buy tickets now and save two bucks at rfbpresents.com. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. That was Tatters and Rags. Make sure to come out and hear them live at our monthly music showcase, RFB Presents, first Thursdays at The Well. It's on February 1st at The Well at 272 Mesrol Street, right here in Bushwick. Tickets are $8 if you buy them in advance online or $10 at the door. So last week, the government wasn't able to come to an agreement on how to fund itself. And now we're in the midst of a federal shutdown. The last time this happened was in 2013, when the White House and Congress were controlled by different parties. That's not the case this year, and it's causing a lot of pointing of fingers on both sides. The fallout is that some government employees are either not working or working without pay. Most federal services are remaining open, according to sources. The parks aren't going to shut down. You can still go to the museums um, and the IRS. You can still file your taxes. And defense services are still running, even though if you're in the military, you're not going to get paid. Mm -hmm. Most point to the disagreement over DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals plan, as the reason that both sides aren't coming to an agreement over this budget. The Republicans want to move forward and pass a budget and then discuss DACA. And the Democrats are saying, no, we want DACA under this plan. So the big question is, what's the point of this shutdown? Is this just political grandstanding? What do you think about the idea of shutting down the government to push forward an agenda, which is what seems to be happening here? Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, a l- political posturing and finger pointing when we get to a shutdown. Like, oh, like this shows that the there's op- even hashtags this year, right? <laughs> the opposition party or the party in power cannot govern. You know, but I I actually believe it this time. You know, I think we're at a point with uh, Congress and with all houses of the government that we cannot get to an agreement to keep the government running. Yeah, you know, this is the second time in five years this has happened, and. You know, yes, all of those organizations within the government are running, but they're running at a skeletal staff. And as you said, you know, the military is uh, not being paid now. It's like the most central things to what keeps us running as a as a country are crippled because people in power cannot do their jobs. Yeah, I think this is a total joke, because first of all, the president is lounging in his Mar-a-Lago estate while the government is shut down all weekend long, which I thought, you know, when you're when your ship is having trouble, when you're on rough seas, if you're the captain, you're at the helm. You're not hanging out at the dinghy going to shore. Okay, you're at the helm and he should be in D.C. He should be at the forefront of this. And I think this is very telling that the captain of this ship is not at the helm. He should be out there. He could make this happen, but he isn't. And he promised he would be doing these sort of things, which is bipartisan agreements and and decision making. And the second thing is, is that with all the stuff 
they have passed in Congress without even one Democrat, one Democrat vote, and the, the tax bill, which they didn't even bother to with the Democrats with this, just give them DACA. You know, with all that, it, that was such an insult. That was, that was, I thought, so anti-democracy to ignore an entire side of our, of our United States, which, I mean, they, they comprise almost half of the Congress. They should have had input on the tax bill. And it's so anti-democracy that, they, that this was passed without any of their input. And you know what? You want to get the government running and you're the majority? All they're asking for is DACA. Just give it to them. It's not a big deal. And I think that you should give it to them. Well, and that's interesting because, you know, if you look at DACA, you look at people who receive that deferment. These, you know, according to many, and, and, and you know, if you look at the policies in place around DACA, these are people that are doing what we want people to come to this country and do. They are working. They are going to school. They are contributing to our society and our economy. They have no criminal records because you cannot qualify for DACA if you have a criminal record. So what are we saying by kind of dragging our feet on this with these, you know, and I don't want to rank immigrants because I don't think that's fair, but these are these are youth that are doing all of the right things. Like, they're doing most things that most American kids that were born here that are natural born citizens aren't doing. Right. Or you don't have a, a, a list of shithole countries that you would like banned. You know, I don't. I do not. I do not. I say everybody, come on. Right, right. But the, these, the DACA recipients are handpicked mm-hmm. to fit the profile, I mean, of even the most conservative Americans mm-hmm. who believe that, you know, a criminal record and other things would disqualify you from becoming American. These people fit all of these categories and they're being shut out. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I just don't know where they get these wrong impressions of immigrants because um, I don't know about either of you, but my parents are immigrants. They were not only immigrants, they were refugees. And my father got his PhD from Columbia University in civil engineering. My mom was a mathematician. And so I don't know uh, where they get these ideas about people coming from and they come from Africa. And so I don't understand where they get these ideas that these people come from this lesser continent that they have viewed or even Haiti or the Caribbean or any of these South America. And these people don't contribute because I think that it takes a lot of courage to leave your country. It's kind of like natural selection. If you can make it out and you can get all the way here and you can find some way to pay your rent and because this is not an easy country to integrate into. And I think if you're if you can make that and you have no criminal record and you don't engage in criminal activities, then you're part of the kind of people we want here. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting that this shutdown is basically a dispute about not making a deal. And and this president has said that he's a deal maker. You know, he has said that he has the ability. And interestingly enough, yeah. when he was talking about, you know, the government shutdown in 2013, he said that, you know, this squarely the blame is on the president. But now the blame is differently. What does this say right. about now that president he's Trump, president, now that he's president. president's yeah, fault. Yeah, it's not right. the president's fault. That's such a good point. He's the deal maker, right? He should be able to broker a deal between even the most difficult, uh, uh, you know, partners. But mm-hmm. where is he? What's he doing? And also, you know, I said mythical a couple of weeks ago, his mythical base. But there are people who are uh, being interviewed now a year later and they still support him, you know, and they're listening to their own news outlets and they're getting fed a continuous narrative. 
where where is this information you know where are they and where's this information about the deal deal making president i actually know many members of the mythical trump base Mm. and um the funny part of them is is that they have such a distrust of not only the government distrust of everything Mm. and i think it's because um they have uh throughout their childhood throughout their experience they seem to have this this i this idea that has solidified really early on about what kind of people uh certain races are and uh, and i think that the the reason um i mean let's not call them even mythical anymore even though i love i can't stop enjoying mm-hmm. hearing violet say mythical base but i want to call them the tragic base because i feel like in a lot of ways when i speak to them um they're the people that have been left behind and the reason mm-hmm. they've been left behind is because they can't move past this time that they're in and and i've and in the, my favorite part, you know, I've met, I may have many friends who voted for Trump and they don't even know, have any idea of my ambiguous ethnicity. And then when I break it to them, it's like earth shattering to them. And I think that they, they just need to get out of their holes and, and visit the rest of America. They need to read more and nothing will make them do that. Hmm. And so I think, think it's I, a lost cause. I think it's, I know really it's a lost cause. Cause I, I mean, think of us and think of how we have formed our view of the world. Our view of the world has been formed by getting out of the world that we were born into, the world that, that was given to us, and try to seek out other worlds. And if you don't try to seek out another world or seek out another point of view, then how are you ever going to be able to think past your own situation? The echo chamber is very powerful. And we talk about the echo chamber on social media, but it came from somewhere. And that came from the echo chamber that exists in these small, tight-knit communities across the country, whether they're red communities or blue communities. You know, it it's this idea that you form your viewpoints with the people around you that have grown up the same way, act the same way, live the same way, look at the same news sources, do the same things every day. That comfort, that familiarity that doesn't allow you to see outside of your experience. So before we get to the break, I'm curious, do you think the next time they're going to vote, the Senate is going to vote at 1 a.m. on Monday? So in about 12, 13 hours, do you think that they'll come to a deal? Do you think we'll we'll be open for business in the United States government on uh, Monday morning? No. (laughs) Calling it now. No, I don't think we're going to get there yet. I agree with Violet. Uh, No, and I think the Democrats are not going to back down from the DACA because they've been left out of so many things. The answer is no. Yeah. I mean, I don't know when we're going to get there. But. Some are saying that this could be a much longer government shutdown than previous. So I guess we'll just have to see to find out. And, you know, I, the, the bottom line is that there are people that are out of work. There are people that depend on, you know, those paychecks coming and they're not going to be coming. So, you know, hopefully we can get to a point where there's there's some resolution and both sides come together and, and at least, you know, make nice so that we can fund our, our government. All right. Coming up after the break, we're going to discuss the women's marches that happened uh, yesterday across all across the country, including in New York City. Uh, first, right now, we're going to listen to more Tatters and Rags. Uh, and we hope you'll join us on February 1st uh, at The Well for RFB Presents, first Thursdays at The Well. Uh, Tatters and Rags is taking the stage with Karen and the Sorrows, Nightmare River Band, uh, and Nightmare River Band. Objection to the Rule will be right back on Radio Free Brooklyn. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. Make sure to check out all of our shows on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com or take us everywhere by downloading the Radio Free Brooklyn app. It's now available on iTunes and Google Play. While the government shut down, was shut down, women took to the streets to march against the Trump administration. Here in New York, musician Halsey recited a poem that filled many with emotions. Let's take a listen to that. How are you guys? So, um, this is my second march. I was in D.C. last year, and uh, I came back to write, to do a speech this time, but... I don't really know how to do a speech unless it rhymes, so I'm going to do a, a little poem for you guys. It's 2009, and I'm 14, and I'm crying. Not really sure where I am, but I'm holding the hand of my best friend Sam in the waiting room of a planned parenthood. The air is sterile and clean, and the walls are that not gray, but green, and the lights are so bright they could burn a hole through the seam of my jeans, and my phone is buzzing in the pocket. My mom is asking me if I remembered my keys, because she's closing the door and she needs to lock it. But I can't tell my mom where I've gone. I can't tell anyone at all. You see, my best friend Sam was raped by a man that we knew because he worked in the after-school program and he held her down with her textbooks beside her and he covered her mouth and then he came inside her. So now I'm with Sam at the place with a plan waiting for the results of a medical exam and she's praying she doesn't need an abortion. She couldn't afford it and her parents would like totally kill her. It's 2002 and my family just moved and the only people I know are my mom's friend Sue and her son. He's got a case of matchbox cars and he says that he'll teach me to play the guitar if I just keep quiet. And the stairwell beside apartment 1245 will haunt me in my sleep for as long as I am alive and I'm too young to know why it aches in my thighs but I must lie. I must lie. It's 2012 and I'm dating a guy and I sleep in his bed and I just learned how to drive and he's older than me and he drinks whiskey neat and he's paying for everything. This adult thing, it's not cheap. We've been fighting a lot, almost 10 times a week and he wants to have sex and I just want to sleep but he says I can't say no to him, this much I owe to him. He buys my dinners so I have to blow him. He's taken to forcing me down on my knees and I'm confused because he's hurting me while he says please. And he's only a man, and these things he just needs, he's my boyfriend. So why am I filled with unease? It's 2017, and I live like a queen. And I follow damn near every one of my dreams. I'm invincible, and I'm so fucking naive. I believe I'm protected because I live on a screen. Nobody would dare act that way around me. I've earned my protection, eternally clean. Until a man that I trust gets his hands in my pants. But I don't want none of that. I just wanted to dance. And I wake up the next morning like I'm in a trance and there's blood. Is that my blood? Oh, hold on a minute. You see, I've worked every day since I was 18. I've toured everywhere from Japan to Mar-a-Lago. I even went on stage that night in Chicago when I was having a miscarriage. I mean, I pied the piper, I put on a diaper and sang out my spleen to a room full of teens. What do you mean this happened to me? You can't put your hands on me. 
You don't know what my body has been through. I'm supposed to be safe now. I earned it. It's 2018 and I've realized that nobody is safe long as she is alive. And every friend that I know has a story like mine. And the world tells me we should take it as a compliment. But then heroes like Ashley and Simone and Gabby, Michaela and Gaga, Rosario, Ali, remind me this is the beginning, it is not the finale, and that's why we're here, and that's why we rally. It's Olympians and a medical resident, and not one fucking word from the man who is president. It's about closed doors and secrets and legs and stilettos from the Hollywood Hills to the projects and ghettos when babies are ripped from the arms of teen mothers and child brides cry globally under the covers who don't have a voice on the magazine covers. They tell us, take cover. But we are not free until all of us are free. So love your neighbor. Please treat her kindly. Ask her her story and then shut up and listen. Black, Asian, poor, wealthy, trans, cis, Muslim, Christian, listen, listen, and then yell at the top of your lungs. Be a voice for all those who have prisoner tongues, for the people who had to grow up way too young. There is work to be done. There are songs to be sung. Lord knows there's a war to be won. Thank you. All I can say is yes, yes. There were so many powerful words spoken, and it was just that really intense experience conveyed. And I'm sure it's an experience, you know, that that many people have shared. I'm curious to know, Rosie, you were at the march yesterday. Um, what was your reaction to the kind of experience? What was the environment like? So I went to the first march as well. And um, and I um, I don't know, I, I have no numbers on how many went this year versus how many went last year. But it did feel like there were more people at the march the first year because I remember I was at the start line and I had to wait three hours just to start to march. Oh, wow. And I was with two small little boys. And so I felt all th every bit of three hours. And this year I felt like, um, you know, maybe it was because it was in an area that was more accessible to people. Cause it was along the upper West side, as opposed to starting near the UN and then going all the way to, uh, midtown. Um, a lot of people joined on the way, and but I felt like uh, I had the sense that the uh, it become mainstream this movement, and you know what? That is not a bad thing. Movements should be mainstream. People, this should be on people's consciousness. And there was an amazing energy, but la last year's energy was like outrage and anger, and like people were very angry. And this year. Um, I don't I feel like people were vindicated because the Me Too movement was successful. So I think they instead of a march of angry, wronged women and their friends and supporters who were males and their children, I think this year they were felt more victorious. Mm -hmm. Because even though um you know it's funny, I don't know if you read what the president wrote on Twitter. Yeah, we did. Okay, he said something like it's a wonderful day to go for women mm -hmm. to uh to, yeah. to go for a walk and celebrate uh, our nation's and triumphs. I yeah. know, and I'm like, he is either oblivious about what's going on because this march directly connects to him. And no, I, I think it's very intentional. Sorry to yeah. interrupt. You, no, it's of I, course. Yeah, yeah. I think no, he did something similar last year. Actually, he he made uh, he tweeted something that indicated he was acting as if the women were marching in support of the new presidency. You know, which was totally against everything. You know, he knows. 
like he, spinning, changing right, the narrative. Right, it's spin. Yeah, def- but definitely this year, the march was victorious. It was confident. I think people last year, they were scared. People last year were scared. They were upset. They were uncertain. And 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 they really felt like they were going to be in shackles by the end of the year. And I feel like this year, the Me Too movement was, was very much an important uh, event for them because... I mean, it was obvious, like, we can make victories happen. We don't need the president to notice us. We don't need him to acknowledge us. We can get things done anyway. And I felt like it was a victorious spirit as opposed to the angry, frightened spirit. But there was still, you know, anger and frustration at the march. But I feel most of the tone was victorious and very positive. The signs were less volatile this year. And um, I did remember one sign I did see... From this is I saw it last year and I saw it this year. Um, uh, a group of women from color were holding up a sign that said 53 percent of white women voted for Trump. And to me, the most important thing about that sign was it reminded me of what happened in Alabama. So it mm-hmm. was kind of a because it's like this back and forth tug. We have victories and then we have losses. No, I think that's a really important point. And as we, you know, continue these conversations and continue these movements it's it's important to realize that we we all had a place in this and you know it's important to kind of understand where we're all heading and you know continue this fighting and continue speaking out so that's all the time we have for this week on objection to the rule thank you rosie thank you violet for joining us make sure to follow us on facebook at objection rfb and tune in next week as we break down the week's news see you later